Welcome to Her Skin, a podcast about the minority experience. I'm Abby Chinaya. A year ago, I started a photography series called Light Skin, Dark Skin, following the stories of brown women and their experiences with colorism. Now I'm taking things a step further. I'm having discussions about diversity, skin color, race, inclusivity, and everything in between. In this episode of Her Skin, I talk to motivational speaker, aspiring health management leader, and all-around inspiring Fatumata Ba. We talk about her journey coming to New Zealand as a refugee, family, what home means to us, colorism, and more. I'm so, so excited that you want to do this with me. No, I'm excited you reached out. I must have been like this random crazy person who just reached out to you. He's like, hey, come sit in a random office and talk to me for an hour. No, but then I, I clicked your um, your profile. I saw, you know, the work that you're doing, your exhibition, and I'm like, you're, you're my people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you're my tribe. So thank you for reaching out um, and for the opportunity to come and have a chat with you today. I just... Um, well, I looked you up extensively and at the work you've been doing, and I think it's incredible. And you are such a good speaker. So I was really intimidated to do this today. Um, like I said, I'm really new to interviewing as well. So hopefully I ask good questions, but steer the conversation, please, if I go off track. But I did want to start about your early years in New Zealand and the talks that I watched of you. you talked about your parents having fled Sierra Leone Mm -hmm. as refugees. So how old were you when you came to New Zealand? Uh, So I was three years old. And um, basically, I I was born in Saudi Arabia in Makkah, um, and my dad was studying there at the time. And then when he had finished and we went back home, you know, the tensions between the rebel rebel forces and the government was getting to a point um, where it it seemed like it was going to be quite serious because for years previously um, it hadn't been very peaceful and so there was all there was always like a sense that you know we're on the edge of something happening and yeah I guess I was quite fortunate that my parents were intuitive that they felt that you know this time it's not going to you know die down that you know something bigger is is going to happen and so we were quite privileged to um come to New Zealand as refugees in 1996 and I think the the date that they said that um you know the civil war officially started was probably 97 so we were yeah, we were really quite um, fortunate. Was the process for your parents getting here difficult? Um, I think it was. And I know that it was definitely more so for my mother than it was my for my father. So he came um, a year before us and sought asylum. And so that was how we were able to come. Um, but, you know, my mother who does didn't speak English at the time basically had to take herself and her children and travel all the way uh, across the globe to a, another country where you know she doesn't know anybody she doesn't have any family or friends um 
And yeah, I, I do know that that journey was huge for her. And my older sister was five at that time. So, you know, traveling, I could imagine during those days was tough, but with a five-year-old and a three-year-old in tow as well, and you not understanding the language, you can imagine that it was a, a tough, tough ask for her. And where in New Zealand did you come to? Yeah, so we came um, and settled in Auckland, in Mangri first. And, um, you know, now we're based in Papatoi. And, you know, me and my sisters, we joke that, you know, our parents wanted to settle quite near or close to the airport because they they want to go back home. And so there's... There's the the hope of you know being able to to go back to retire, um, but yeah, South South Auckland has been home. What was Auckland like back in those days? Yeah, I mean, I think it was. I I you know in reflection feel that I'm quite fortunate that we um, settled in a place that is very diverse, um, and you know, throughout primary school and even high school, I would say that my, like, I was always the only black person in the room, the only African in the room, but because I was surrounded by my friends who were Samoan, they were Tongan, they were Maori, they were Cook Island, Cambodian, Nguyen, for me, it it almost made me felt normal because I was different just like them. Um, and I would say that it wasn't until um, my first year of university, uh, which I went down to Otago, that it really hit me that, um, you know, not all of New Zealand is as diverse <laughs> as Auckland, um, but South Auckland specifically because you know, if you go out into other certain suburbs, it's not as as diverse anyway. No, and when my father was here, he came in the mid to early 70s and he was in Christchurch. Oh, wow. And that's where I was born in mm. 92. So that's why I asked you the question. I was interested to know what your early schooling days were like because mine weren't fun in Christchurch. Yeah. I was terribly bullied Mm. my father had a lot of animosity in Christchurch he still carries a lot of it with him today and I wondered if you'd had any discrimination at school but you said you hadn't and that's good um well I wouldn't say that I hadn't um and I think you know as as humans we kind of suppress certain memories that um you know took place in our formative years almost as a protective factor and for me if i sit down and really think about it i can absolutely give you two or three examples um where you know during primary school when i was very young and one of them would be for example um i was always called blackie by the other students in my class and i remember one day my year two teacher um mrs cozzle she she got so fed up of hearing the the students calling me that you know she made me stand up in front of the class and she made me stand next to another student who was wearing a black like a black t-shirt and was like 
kids, this is the color black. Fatimata is not the same color. You guys cannot call her blackie. It's not okay and you need to stop. And, you know, for the most part, that addressed my year two class. But throughout primary school, that was a, a name that I got accustomed to be called. Wow. And were all teachers that kind? Um, yeah. I, I think I've been, you know, really quite fortunate um, because <laughs> we know that the unconscious bias that we bring in or we know that we we learn those behaviors, right? So those kids name calling, um, that's something that they learn from somebody else. And even teachers, I would say, um, you know, may stereotype their students, put labels on them, not really help them to reach their full potential because of the biases that they carry. So I'm quite fortunate that I didn't have an experience where I would say my teacher, you know, imposed that unconscious bias and and baggage on me. That's good. I remember in New Zealand, I had really good teachers as a young child and then coming back later for high school. But in the middle, growing up in Malaysia, Mm. didn't have good experiences at school, especially in primary school. I had a lot of teachers that would bully me essentially because I'd come back in from New Zealand with the Kiwi accent Mm. but I was dark skinned and I think I didn't fit the stereotypes yeah so that didn't sit well with them and I was really talkative because Mm. at school in New Zealand they push you to talk and be who you are but the difference in schools in Malaysia was that they very much want you to put your head down and learn and it's all about books and being quiet and following the rules and I had a hard time following that teachers didn't like that about me sure but in New Zealand I had really supportive teachers I did have a couple of teachers that I still talk to in Malaysia now who were really really kind and because I always wanted to be a writer and I'll never forget one of my teachers in primary school who made me feel so good about myself when I when I didn't feel good about myself because Mm. of the people around me and how they were treating me and pushed me to write and said you're really really good at English and you know you can do this and you always need some structural support I think like that in yeah. your life in your formative years and I'm glad I had a few people like that. No I, I think we really um, I, I feel that teachers and the teaching profession is one of the most undervalued um, in society and we can you know never fully acknowledge the extent to which the teachers have power and influence over students because you know if if you're told again and again and again that you're stupid or that you'll never come to anything it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and you know you believe it and then you become it and it works the same the other way if you um you know are privileged enough to have teachers and a support system that encourage you and that help you and that let you know that you have the potential to achieve, you are most likely to achieve. Um, but I find it quite interesting that you should, <laughs> that your comment about being talkative, because I actually had that problem. <laughs> um, I was a chatterbox. I would always talk and my, my teachers had trouble um, 
you know, making sure that I didn't talk too much. (laughs) But I like how you also mentioned that if you have figures in your life telling you that you are smart Mm. and that you can do it and that you will succeed, it's really important. And I think of my father in particular who always told me I was really, really smart Mm. and that I could do it. And he's a huge inspiration to me. And when I was watching your videos and your talks and your narrative, a lot of it revolves around mum. Yeah. And I wanted to know more about mum and how she's inspired you. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, my mother is just an absolutely formidable, you know, woman um, for what she did in bringing my sisters to New Zealand, but also for the fact that it was so difficult and I think during that time during the 90s as well um, we weren't as diverse as we are today and it was hard you know we come from a collectivist society where everybody on the street that you live in knows each other you know you're surrounded by family members and extended family members and to shift to a more individualistic society where you can go for years without never meeting your neighbor, um, where there is no community and what you expect to have that communal support is is not there and you're just by yourself and it's only you. Um, that's, that's huge. And, you know, I think the fact that my sisters and I have all... Um, you know, grown up relatively okay <laughs> is a is a huge testament to um, to my parents, but more so to my mother for raising us up um, without having that support. And also, I think the fact that um, so when we first came to New Zealand, we had to go through a health check, and this basically picked up that. Um, my older sister and I have a genetic blood condition, sickle cell anemia. Um, and so my older sister has been quite fortunate um, that she hasn't really had a lot of um, adverse experiences because of sickle cell. Um, but I unfortunately, I guess, drew the short straw um, and struggled with it a lot more. I've had two major operations. There was a time where every month I would be hospitalized. Um, So my mother was not only dealing with, you know, raising children in a country where she doesn't have the support network or a community, but also looking after a child who is sick and will have episodes and needs to have more support. Um, And so, yeah, I think for all of those reasons that, you know, my mother is just an absolutely amazing human. What were your parents' journey like integrating into New Zealand society as refugees? Yeah, I think it was probably a lot easier for my dad. Um, So, you know, he went to university in Saudi Arabia. And so when he came to New Zealand, um, he was, I think, able to pick up the the language 
much faster. Um, he studied at MIT. So, you know, he was engaging with people. He was having conversations um, and eventually was, was working, whereas my mother um, was a stay-at-home mom. And so she didn't have that connection, that community, um, that opportunity to, you know, just in, engage with people and and have that support network so i think it it was definitely much more difficult um for my for my mother than it was for my dad um but i think you know we we were quite fortunate that um there is a a big muslim community here in um new zealand and in line with, I guess, the the values of the religion, um, we we found a lot of support within the, the Muslim community. And so, you know, a lot of my dad's friends are um, Indian and um, and I, I can pick up on a few Indian <laughs> words. Like wow. my my connection to the to that community is is big because they were the people that we were surrounded with and they were the um, the village that we um, had, because you know there there is an African proverb that states that it takes a village to to raise a child, and I think not even a child, but for any individual to thrive and prosper, they need to have their tribe, um, and so. My dad was lucky that he was more connected to a tribe um, than than my mother was. But I think, you know, after a few more years, it it got better, but it was definitely very difficult um, at the beginning. And, you know, I, I remember a conversation where my mum was telling me and my sisters how when when she first arrived like they didn't know that calling overseas back home was so expensive and uh, you know my my mother wanting to have that connection to to Fano um would would call back often and i think the first bill that they got was like $300 <laughs> because of you know the amount of times that she would be calling and you know she she had a lifeline but then that lifeline was too expensive, and so it it was it was it was difficult. Um, it was a difficult journey for sure. I still remember the time of writing letters because <laughs> my mum and dad live in Malaysia. Okay, and they took me back with them, and I spent ten years there. My sister, who was ten years older than me lived in New Zealand mm-hmm. and we would write letters to each other and because of the phone bill issue yes we would have calling cards yes with a limit on it <laughs> and you're halfway through a cool conversation beep 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 and the credit's off. gone yes oh I remember so many trips to the dairy like oh can you buy a phone card and all of the different phone cards um that were out at that time um but yeah it's amazing and I, I think, you know, I feel quite privileged that um, I have such an easy access to my family. Um, so there's not a big Sierra Leone community here. There is no other Fulani family, I would say, in the whole of New Zealand. Um, 
and I, and I say that with quite a bit of confidence, but I can still, you know, get in contact with my cousins and with my aunts and uncles because there's Facebook, there's Viber, there's Skype, there's WhatsApp. Um, being connected to them is so much more easier today than it was in in the 90s. And I think that's um, probably one of the reasons why um, it's so much better and easier for my mum now because she will literally, to this day, like be on the phone with my aunt for like three, four hours. And they're just catching up on what's been happening, the family goss, and it's it's great. That's awesome. And you also talked about your trip to Sierra Leone. Mm. Am I saying it correctly? Yeah, I'm Sierra Leone. That's right. And it was in 2008? Yes. Have you been back since? Yes. Um, so been back twice now. And that first trip in 2008 was uh, an epiphany. It was huge. Um so I think I was 14 at that time. But, you know, having come to New Zealand when I was three, I don't have a lot of memories or recollections of, you know, being either in Saudi Arabia or in Sierra Leone. And so gearing up to this first trip in 2008, I was really excited because I didn't know where I was going to. And my understanding and image of Sierra Leone in Africa was the information that I was being fed on TV, on the news. And it was this very um, negative narrative of poverty, of famine, of war and I remember me and my sisters, our our concern was, you know, will we have a house to go to when we visit our um, grandmother in the village? We, you know, we we saw the the thatched roof huts and we were like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna be living in this when we go. Like, how are we gonna get used to living in a thatch after <laughs> in a hut after, you know, living so good here in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand? Um, and I remember when we went to my grandmother's and you know she was living in an actual house and she had a bathroom and an ensuite it was just so profound to me that you know my country of origin is actually not all or only the the negative that i was seeing 2008 was that a trip back because you'd been there because mm-hmm. you said you were living in Saudi Arabia so because I, I was born in Saudi and so I spent um, I think two years in Saudi Arabia and then about probably only six months in Sierra Leone before coming to to New Zealand so 2008 was the first time that we went back um, having arrived in New Zealand in, in 1996 so yeah, that that trip was huge, and I think I I didn't understand the significance and importance of family until I went to the until we you know we went because 
I would hear my mum and I would, you know, have phone conversations with aunts and uncles, but I couldn't put a name to a face. And I didn't know that I had cousins and grandparents. And I think after that trip and coming back to New Zealand, it was really difficult because I knew that this was what my mother had sacrificed, what my parents had sacrificed in leaving um, Sierra Leone to come to New Zealand. And that sacrifice is huge. And yeah, that was that was difficult. I totally agree with you. And I have felt a disconnect every day since I've been living here because my mm. parents are in Malaysia and it never gets easier. No. And you... I wouldn't say forget, it's just something you kind of accept. Yes. And then I'll go back to Malaysia and remember how fulfilling it can be to be around your family. Mm. And it always made me think of the word home because it's used so casually in sentences or in conversation. I'm going home. I'm just going to go get home for the weekend. Yeah. You know, home. And I thought, oh, what does home actually mean to me? Because... I've spent all my life between two countries with very, very different cultures. Mm. And mum and dad are here. I'm here. I was born here. I feel connected to this country. When I came back, it was an immediate thing for me. But a big part of my life, my best friends are in Malaysia. Mm. What is home? I wanted to hear what home means to you. Sure. I I guess for me... um home is where the people that you are connected to where they are and you know you mentioned your your parents being in Malaysia and even though you find yourself in between two places because they're there you're still connected to them and I think for me as well, even though I haven't spent a lot of years, I I would say that I haven't even probably spent one year in my existence to date in Sierra Leone, there is still a very strong connection because of my family members that are there, because of the people that I am connected to. And I know that we have a rich culture, we have a rich history, And it's actually something that I've been um, thinking about, you know, how important it is to to know that history, to know that culture. But the only reason why I feel such a big connection to Sierra Leone is because my my family are there. Um, And even here in New Zealand, you know, some people would, would see me and you know, would not assume that I'm a New Zealander or that I'm a Kiwi because I don't look like what a Kiwi is supposed to look like. Um, but because I have connection with so many people here and because I grew up here, it is home. So whether you feel the need to tell me that I belong or not, it's actually only something that I can give myself at the end of the day. And I think coming to that point actually took years. I remember one time we went out um, shopping at Westfield and 
you know, my, my mother likes to wear African clothes when we go out. Um, and this woman, she was driving in her car and then she, she said that um, she'd like to offer us a free trip, a free ride to the airport so we can go back to where we came from. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, when you, when you have microaggressions and, you know, conversations where you're constantly being reminded that you're different or that you're other, you do question yourself. Um, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, belonging is, is something that only you can give yourself and it's not up to somebody else to dictate to you. So yes, all of these incidences and microaggressions made me felt a certain way and made me think, well, where do I belong? And it's funny because I was uh, talking with my sister yesterday and and she was saying, and, and she just said like, I don't think I, I belong anywhere in the world you know she um she recently moved to melbourne and has been there since i think june july last year but it's i I think it goes back to home not necessarily being the place where you were born or the place where your family is but where you feel a connection to the people that's there yeah, I was I was born in Saudi Arabia, but I I have no connection to Saudi whatsoever. Just that story you told me about your mum wearing her traditional outfit and having that comment discrimination. Mm. And I wanted to talk about because for me I have I mean, we've all had races racial um, experiences and colorism yep. played a big part in my whole life mm-hmm. which is why I have a photography series on it because it's so important to me and there there are certain situations that I will never forget mm. bigger moments of discrimination in my life that taught me a lot of lessons and have brought me here today having yeah. this discussion with you mm-hmm. I wanted to know if you've had these bigger moments of discrimination and what those were yeah, I mean, I think I've, I've shared a few, but I would say that my most profound moment of um, colorism took place when I went back to Sierra Leone for the first time in 2008. Um, and I would say before that point in time, like I was aware that I was black but I didn't know that there was, that I was a shade of black and that my shade of black was on the too dark spectrum. And that actually means a whole lot of stuff. So, you know, being here in New Zealand in a diverse um, community, it, it was just never something that I had come across. But then when I was back home and I was with my family and then, you know, I would have an aunt make a comment, you know, something along the lines that, oh, if only my daughter was um, was light like me and not dark like her father, she would be more beautiful. And my older sister is 
the lightest in the family and I'm the darkest in the family. And I found that out during that trip. And I remember, you know, sharing a story about how sometimes, um, you know, at school, the teachers will get me and my older sister confused because we look alike. And then I had um, another aunt who who was cackling and laughing. She, She was like, how can they not tell the difference between the two of you? She's white, you're black. So for me, like, you know, these moments were like, huh, okay. Like, I just, I did not know that my shade was was a thing and that it was actually, um, you know, not, not seen as something that's good. And because I was darker, well, I am darker, that I am somehow lesser than because of the pigmentation on my skin. And... You know, as a 13, 14 year old, you're kind of going through forming your identity and it, 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 you know, it hit me hard. And I remember breaking down at one point and my mom's like, you know, she was so concerned. And I talked to her about what happened and she was upset because I was upset. And I remember she was having a conversation with my aunt about it. And then my aunt was like, but this is just the way that we are. People who are lighter are, are more beautiful and better than those who are darker. And like, it was it was just so like non-calent, like, and she was like, oh, you should just tell your daughters to get used to our society because this is the way that we are. And I mean, my my mom had a massive argument with my aunt (laughs) over that. But I think for me, from that moment on, I kind of picked up within my culture that, and and I would say that it's within the Fulani, the tribe that I'm from more. So we, you know, really pride ourselves on being beautiful people. Um, You know, we we think that we are more beautiful than other different tribes because we have smaller noses, we have smaller lips, we don't have your um, standard African features. And this is just so disempowering because we're trying to be something that we're not or we're uh, trying to align ourselves to be something that we're not. And coming back to New Zealand, I think I was one more aware of like the the conversations that my my mom was having in the context. So, for example, when somebody dies, um, like I remember one time there was that comment, oh, she was so light skinned. She was so beautiful. It's so sad that she passed away. (laughs) And I actually called my mom out on it. I was like... So mama, if she was if she was darker, if she was black, would that make her death less, you know, of a, of a sad thing? And like she was like, you know, taken aback by how um I guess direct I was in, in calling her out on it, but I think, you know, for her herself, she did not acknowledge or even realize the colorism that we have within our community and 
it was only because she had a dark daughter who was going through or who had gone through certain, um, you know, really negative experiences that it came to her that, okay, this is this is a problem and it is an issue. It's a huge issue, yeah. Because, like, she was like, well, absolutely not. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm like, but then did you... Like, were you aware that you even said that? No, because that's what I've heard other people say. It's what I have learned, so I will continue to, I guess, just regurgitate it. And I think it's it's so important for us to be very critical of um, our beliefs, our cultures, our practices, and the conversations that we have and the implication that it has for other people as well. And I think colorism as a whole hasn't been discussed as much as racism. And when I was starting to launch Light Skin, Dark Skin, had a question, isn't colorism and racism the same thing? Mm. And I said, no, it's not. Maybe it's easy to get all the isms confused. Yes. (laughs) But colorism is prejudice because of the color of your skin. Yes. And if you are darker, you're often to be seen as lesser than. Mm. And for me growing up, I had to use lightning creams and all of that was put on me. And, you know, you're just always feeling inferior and feeling your color, which is what I've so often had because I also have a mum who's very light-skinned and Mm. I was compared to her often. And things being told like, don't go play out in the sun because you're going to become dark. Yes. Don't wear that colour. You'll look even darker. Because why are you wearing black? You're already black. Or if I wanted to wear white and then I was told, you're just going to look darker. Don't do that. Mm. Wear a colour that'll bring out, you know, the fairness. Yeah. And now if someone told me that, no, I'm not going to take it, right? Mm. I'll, I'll fight back. But as you said, at 13, 14, you're impressionable. You're learning about who you are. And like for me, it was until really my mid-20s. And I realized that I'm fine the way I am, actually. And I yes. really, really like who I am. Mm. And I'm sad that I had to grow up thinking that I wasn't good enough because I was too dark. I'm glad now <laughs> I, I don't think that way and I've accepted who I am and I love it and I'm, yes. I'm proud of it. And yes. We all should be proud of who we are. Absolutely. And I think what I've really loved seeing over the past couple of years is, you know, these movements coming out, um, you know, the the natural hair movement, black girl magic, like owning the narrative and just absolutely rejecting to conform to societal norms. I think that's, you know, being um, broken down and we're kind of coming to a state and a conversation where there is no one norm. You can just be whatever, whoever, and that is um, okay. And that difference should be. And I, I don't know what it is. I, I wouldn't say that ethnic um, communities in particular have a more um, focus on beauty. I, I would say that, you know, it's the same across all different cultures. But I think it's fascinating how it's the Eurocentric features that is at the top of the hierarchy, that lighter skin. And, you know, I went to um, 
Auckland International College, which has uh, predominantly Asian students. And I was absolutely gobsmacked how, you know, just some of the conversations and the things that some of the students would do to maintain their lightness. And, you know, in the back of my head, I'm like, you are as light (laughs) as you can get. How much more white do you want to get? But, you know, also, you know, students going through um, double eyelid surgery and parents using a nose job as a, a gift to their student, sorry, to their to their child for achieving certain grades or getting into certain universities. Like it, it it's it's just something that I you know even think about to this day. Like why is it that we all aspire to look one certain way? And it's, it was hard, you know, when you because you see it in your media all the time. It's in magazines, on telly. Yes. And they're all either white and blonde and skinny. Mm. Or in Asia, it was popular to put what we call Eurasians mm. as our media spokespeople. So they, had, they were half Asian, half white, therefore had sharp features, lighter yep. skin, and they were seen as the ideal. And remember as a kid thinking... How do I look like that? Because I didn't know the what Eurasian meant at the time. Yeah, and and it's it's sad, but I think it's it's the same in many different places around the world. Because you know, even back in in West Africa, you have situations where women would prioritize getting the skin whitening cream over, um, you know, putting food on the table, and then there's the amount of chemical straighteners that we put in our hair so that we get that silky, soft hair that is not natural to, you know, how we are made. But it's literally, you're, you're, you're having chemicals stripping off the layers of your skin to look a certain way. And it's, it's ridiculous um, how far we have gone and people want to go to 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 look a certain way to feel validated to feel empowered to feel that they are worthy of something and it's it, it's sad that we have to put that down to what we look like yeah i still remember because Fair and Lovely was the product that's used heavily in Asia. Mm. And um, I was given tubs of it as a kid. And I remember the cream was also very white, pearly white. Mm. And it looked like crushed up pearls, actually. I'll never forget the smell. And I'd look at the tube and you had the dark girl and then the light girl. She's all happy. And I thought, wow, I'm going to look like that. Yes. And then you'd put it on. And I'm so, so glad that I was such a lazy child. (laughs) that I would put it on one day and then, because you meant to put it on every day or whatever, and I'm yeah. like, I don't want to put it on, I'm too lazy. And because I played sports a lot and I was always out in the sun and mm. I'd wear short sleeves, didn't care, didn't put sunblock on, I was like, wee, and then just never did the creams or anything. So just kind of gave up on it. I, was, yeah. I just thought, meh. Because I too think- too much maintenance. <laughs> and I think subconsciously I also, I just never cared. I was actually yeah. just quite, 
really deep down, despite what people were telling me and later on as a teenager, what I believed I should be. Yeah. At the time I thought, I don't care, I'm actually fine with how I look mm. and I like my color and I won't, you know, just can't be bothered putting these creams on. But it's just, yeah, it's wild what society can put on you yeah and make you do and especially in your formative years and when you're yeah very vulnerable and impressionable and they they actually kind of are selling you happiness that lighter skinned girl on that tube when you look at it you think okay so if i am lighter i will be happier my life will be better i would like to think that there is um a counter narrative a counter movement taking place today and you know I've, I've been natural myself um since 2014 um and you know learning about yes my hair is easier to brush through when it's not in its natural form but actually using chemicals to peel off layers of my scalp is probably not the best way to to go about doing that and you know i i can have my curls and maintain them without going to extreme lengths and i think it's i i think it's um i am hopeful that colorism is being um you know addressed and being talked on like platforms like yours but also you know, the fact that you have all of these different beauty brands who are very conscious that they need to be um, representative of the diverse customers that they have. And I remember there was a time um, in my early teens where getting foundation and my skin color was like, it was a difficult thing. Like, you know, Maybelline, L'Oreal, all of your, your usual brands, they didn't at that time you know, have all of these different shades. But now you can get literally every color under the sun. It was impossible to find back then. I remember having, I just all looked powdered and weird and the rest of me was all my normal color. Yeah, and, and you would usually go for um, the shade that's lighter or the one that, yeah. Yes. Mismatched, yeah. And then you have, <laughs> you just look just bizarre, really reading up on you mm. you advocate for diversity and inclusivity mm -hmm. and I just wanted to hear your thoughts on how you think we can bring more diversity and inclusivity into our community yeah um so I've been really quite fortunate to um you know have a lot of leadership and development opportunities and in 2016, um, I did the Common Purpose 3360 Young Leaders Program in Glasgow and came across um, cultural intelligence. Um, and I think, I, I genuinely believe that, you know, cultural intelligence is a skill a tool, um, a way for us to truly be more di more inclusive of the diversity. 
And so when I first heard this term cultural intelligence, I thought, okay, so it's just about, you know, knowing a lot about other people's cultures and knowing a lot about the difference of other people and how it's important to them. And, you know, having grown up in South Auckland, being surrounded by difference, I thought, actually, cultural intelligence is a skill that I'm already good at because I know a lot about different cultures. But what I found really profound was cultural intelligence is first and foremost understanding and having a level of self-awareness and knowing how the context and the environment which you grew up in actually impacts the way that you interact with other people. So these these two ideas of core and flex. So core is something that um, is, I would say, foundational to you, right? It's, it's something that without it, you are not the person who you are. So for me, my hijab or my headscarf is core to who I am. If I was put in a situation or a context where somebody asked me to take it off, I would say, no, this is not something, it's a non-negotiable, basically. But flex is, you know, certain aspects that um, we are willing and able to change and flex and, and be accommodating. And so this idea of cultural intelligence is actually being self-aware and acknowledging how your own biases impact the way that you interact with with other people. And I think until we have a, a certain level of self-awareness or understanding, we won't be inclusive. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's probably one of the reasons why I'm such a advocate for, for cultural intelligence, because I think the the idea of it is quite profound but also it's not until you understand yourself in relation to others can you truly be inclusive or try to create an environment where you are um allowing other people to to be them their, their true selves, to bring their full selves to work, for example. Yeah. And I think, I like how you also mentioned self-awareness. And I think also having conversations as a collective versus narrowing the scope and just talking about one thing. If we're all talking about inclusivity together, then we can make things happen, right? Mm. But if we're all operating in silos on our own individual things and not opening the scope to other backgrounds and life stories, how are we going to move anywhere? Absolutely. And that's what I want to achieve with what I'm doing. (laughs) I want all the stories. And I think people need to also be open to evolution. You are going to make mistakes mistakes you can learn from it Mm -hmm. call yourself out yes and just include people great teams make good things happen absolutely and I actually I find it quite fascinating how you know you mentioned the different group and the silos and um like how we're not already collaboratively 
you know, trying to move forward or push the agenda forward because fundamentally the experience is the same or the issue is the same, right? But then you also have like these counter narratives like, you know, just with with, with, with the Black Lives Matter um, movement and you have other people saying, oh, all lives matter or Asian lives matter and X and Y or Z lives matter. And it's really difficult to see that narrative being pushed through because fundamentally we're, we're all against the same thing. And I, I think you have a point, you know, we, we do need to work together and, and try to change the system and try to change ourselves. And I think absolutely acknowledge that we are all on this journey together. We're humans, we're not perfect, we will make mistakes, but the difference is, you know, being able to call yourself out, but also wanting to make the change to do better and to be better. And you're right, ego ego does have a big thing. Um, I think a, a big role to play in it because it's it's uncomfortable. You know, the conversations that we need to have, it's it's probably, we don't want to hear it. And, you know, as, as humans, what we do is we deploy defense mechanisms to protect ourselves because we don't want to be told that you know, the words that I said was racist. Just like apologizing. I, I don't yeah. know why it seems something so difficult to do, like acknowledging that actually, yes, your words had a profound impact on somebody. And even though it may seem nonsensical or insignificant to you, to that individual, it actually wasn't. And for you to just apologize or even acknowledge that you did something wrong and next time there's a different way that you can communicate or engage with them would be so huge to that individual so that they feel empowered and validated. And I think, you know, there's a huge power dynamics in it as well. And working with everyone's agendas. Mm. It's all a learning curve. And a lot of my learning came for me after university and getting into work and working in offices and because you're chucked into a room with all these different personalities and you have to work with them. Yeah. And that was a big learning curve for me. So I was interested to know what post-university life has been for you. Yeah, I would say post-university life has been um, just as interesting <laughs> for me. Um, and I think just going back to the point how I've been saying, I've you know, been really privileged that the circles that I'm in or the space that I'm in is diverse. And I'm now in the corporate sector where it's not as diverse as what I am used to. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's definitely been a journey, um, but we're all, I think that the, the reality is that, is that we are all a part of this 
or on this journey. And yes, for some of us, we're at different stages than others, but I'm, you know, quietly confident that the the movement and the change that we're seeing on social media in society will actually come to something and you know we're we're having these conversations in the workplace it's uh, you know it's it's being discussed and i think i feel that it's unfortunate that it will take a lot of time to change but i do feel like we're kind of slowly getting there but i yeah, I think, you know, having done cultural intelligence, um, I just feel that there's so many opportunities and especially like in, in Auckland, you know, we're one of the most diverse cities in the world. We're more diverse than Tokyo, than London, than New York. Like we're actually really diverse. So to be able to work together to make sure that, you know, we can um, have the benefits of diversity as opposed to the the issues that can potentially stem for it, from it is, is so important. And there is absolutely an imperative um, for us to address the, the race relations that we have in our communities and to make sure that our workplaces are reflective of the diversity within the community. And I think our, um, you know, local and central government need to do a lot more work as well to make sure that they are reflective of the diverse community that they serve. Have you found it hard balancing out of work projects and work? Yes, it's it's been difficult and I think I, I just need to choose one or two or maybe even three <laughs> projects or things to to focus on um, because at the end of the day, I am just like everybody else. I only have 24 hours in my day and I feel like that there's so many different, you know, exciting projects and opportunities that's going on and I want to be a part of it. Um, but I think I've come to acknowledge this year, I would say more so, um, is that I can actually still be a part of that conversation, but I can actually connect more people and make sure that certain opportunities are spread around more. Um, but yeah, just really excited by a lot of things that I think are happening. And it's it's quite easy to feel um, depressed and disengaged today, right? Especially this year. Oh, you know, this, this pandemic that has kind of been thrown at us. But I think it's actually a huge opportunity for change and to do better. And it, it should be a wake-up call. COVID-19 should shake us all to the core so that we are doing more to address the inequities within our healthcare system, within all of the different structures that we have, the race relations, Black Lives Matter, addressing not necessarily all of the wrongs, but we we have a chance to make sure that 
our societies are more equitable for everyone. And, you know, maybe COVID-19 can be that trigger for, for change at a must at a much faster rate. What is next for you? Yeah. Um, what is next for me? That's a good question. I, to be honest, I feel like, like many people, COVID-19 and, you know, being in lockdown forcibly to sit down with your own thoughts and kind of evaluate what's important to you. Um, for me, I've kind of come to the realization that actually it doesn't matter what which sector that I'm in specifically so whether it's public corporate or um, not-for-profit it doesn't matter if I am working within the Ministry of Health or within a district health board I can still have the impact and change within the healthcare system without needing a specific title or role. And I think, you know, just being more open to collaborating and engaging as opposed to doing my own thing so I um 2016 you know really put into thought um about launching my own social enterprise Manawahine so I acknowledge that I am where I am today because of the amazing individuals that I've had in my life um and the mentors and I feel like mentoring is is such a powerful tool and so I was and still probably am working on um, Manawahine, which would be a mentoring program, connecting women together, providing a platform where conversations can take place. But there's also so many other different social enterprises and organizations that are out there. And, and actually I can still have an impact by connecting or engaging with another organization as opposed to me trying to do it all by myself. And I think it's going back to the comment that you made about us being in, in silos. We we have the same goal. We have the same agenda. We just have to work together more to, to reach that. So in my um, community work, out of work space, I think that's, that's probably what's next for me um, is, is just being more selective in the things that I'm involved with and engaged with. Um, and and work-wise is probably not being so fixated on being at a certain, having a certain title or being within a certain organization to achieve the the goal that I want because the reality is I can most likely do that in in many different shapes and and forms and I shouldn't be as stressed out about it yeah well Fatimata we've come to the end of our chat this has been amazing and when I asked you what's next for you I was thinking gosh you have 
already accomplished so much and you are doing incredible work and I'm so glad that you agreed to do this today. No, thank you for reaching out. Seriously, I was so um, impressed and excited when I saw your photography series and I really hope um, that your exhibition continues and that it's all over the country because I think the discussions and the the platform that you have to put stories that are not on the mainstream um, is is profound for for young women for young people of color um, who have the same experiences or similar experiences to us who are going through difficult times and who maybe feel like it's it's too much and I think when you see that actually somebody else has already walked through that path and has gone through that same difficulties. You see that they have done it. You have hope that you can too. So if anything, congratulations to you (laughs) on the amazing work that you have done. And I'm, yeah, really quite privileged to be here today and and have this discussion with you. Um, Those are all the words I was going to say to you. (laughs) Wow. But, you know, I... A big goal of mine is to connect with amazing women like you. And like I said, I think together it makes gives us a bigger platform to get these messages out there and get all this work done. And it's important. And I'm so, so glad. Thank you so much. No, thank you for reaching out. I'm sure we'll definitely be in touch. Absolutely.